President uh, Kennedy, members of the Royal Irish Academy, uh, distinguished guests, uh, ladies and gentlemen. It is indeed an honour and a privilege to have been invited to speak to this august and distinguished assembly uh, this evening. One indication of which is that this is indeed the first time during my presidency of the British Academy that I have addressed any other sister academy anywhere else uh, in Europe or indeed anywhere else in the world. It is especially fitting and appropriate that I should indeed speak first here in Dublin, for the British Academy's relations with the Royal Irish Academy are closer and more cordial than with any other such organisation as evidenced most recently by our joint work before and since the United Kingdom's referendum on Brexit. Prior to the vote, we held two round tables uh, in London and in Dublin, together with the publication uh, of a joint report. Since the referendum, we have worked closely on a succession of Brexit briefings, focusing on the border, the common travel area, human rights, the Good Friday Agreement, and the all-island economy. And indeed, all of those briefings are available outside, uh, free of charge, if you would like to take them away uh, and read them uh, later on. I shall, of course, return to Brexit later in this lecture. But let me just observe for now that we have it on good authority that those briefings which our two academies together uh, have worked on have not only been well read in London, and no doubt here as well, uh, but also, in fact, in Brussels. This is exactly as it should be, for they provide essential background and context without which the vexed question of the border cannot uh, be fully understood. I also note, with a combination of envy and admiration, that the Royal Irish Academy like the Royal Society of Edinburgh, encompasses in its areas of interest and engagement the whole range of human knowledge across the sciences, the humanities and the social sciences. Whereas in Britain, these activities are represented by four separate academies. Our relations uh, with the other three are good, but nevertheless, I'm rather grudgingly inclined to admit that Dublin and Edinburgh seem to manage these things rather better than we do in London. And of course, and again, like the Royal Society of Edinburgh, the Royal Irish Academy is an organisation by comparison with which the British Academy, in terms of its relatively recent origins at the beginning of the 20th century, is an upstart, an arriviste, and even something of a parvenu. So my presence uh, here tonight is not only a display of solidarity in terms of our shared belief uh, in reason and learning, evidence-based research, free trade in ideas, and the International Republic uh, of Letters. True, though, of course, that is. But also an act of homage and obeisance to such a splendid organisation, which so vividly combines venerability with vitality. For anyone of my generation, it is impossible to utter the words President Kennedy without thinking of an earlier figure who bore that title and that name. A vivid reminder of the great significance of the importance of the Irish diaspora, especially but not exclusively in North America and in the Antipodes. 
a major historical subject in its own right, which has recently begun to receive the serious scholarly treatment it undoubtedly deserves. John F. Kennedy's inaugural address was, among other things, a ringing affirmation of America's commitment to global engagement and to the unwavering support of its Western allies. He also believed passionately in education and in the life of the mind. I couldn't, of course, make any comment uh, on the current incumbent of the White House, uh, except to say that, alas, we don't seem to be living in that world now. But I do wonder, Mr. President, to return to you, how your appointment and inauguration were greeted here at the Royal Irish Academy when it was learned that you would be taking office. In my case, across the Irish Sea in London, I must admit the response was somewhat equivocal, ranging from the ill-informed to the downright dismay. Hugely thrilled, one email declared, that you will be the next president of the Royal Academy. I never knew you painted pictures. <laughs> Utterly delighted, opined a second, that you are to be the new president of BAFTA. I never knew that you made films. <laughs> Since I became president, we have been working hard to raise the British Academy's profile uh, in public, uh, in parliament, among the civil service, uh, in the media, uh, and among policy makers and pundits. Uh, and I hope that my successor will not be greeted in quite the same bewildered way as I on occasions was. Even more disconcerting was one encounter I had with a London taxi driver. I was on my way to a studio behind Broadcasting House to record my second series, which President you kindly mentioned, of Prime Minister's props for Radio 4. Having given my destination, but not revealed my purpose, the driver turned round and inquired, does that mean you are the member of an ageing rock band? <laughs> A question I have to say I have never been asked before, and which I fervently hope I shall never be asked again. To which I replied, summoning up such wounded dignity as I could muster, and as I thought unanswerably, no, I am not the member of an ageing rock band, but I am the next president of the British Academy. To which he responded, I fear, even more unanswerably, doesn't that amount to the same thing? <laughs> In addition to being here as president of the British Academy, uh, I would like uh, to mention, as the president already has, that I am also editor of the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. And so, of course, I bring fraternal greetings to the Dictionary of Irish Biography, which I realise is one of the flagship enterprises of the Royal Irish Academy, which it supports so generously, and with which uh, the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography enjoys long-standing conduct uh, relations that we are eager to develop further. Well, let me turn to the substance of what I would like to talk about this evening. When I am not presiding over the affairs of the British Academy, or overseeing things at the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. I spend my time working as a historian of modern Britain uh, very broadly defined. For that does not just mean these islands uh, grouped together off the coast of mainland Europe and the complicated and changing interrelations between them, but also the British Empire of Settlement and Rule and also the relations with the United States. This in turn means that I hope it's not inappropriate that the substance of my lecture this evening is indeed devoted to what I have called the Irish dimension to British history from the Act of Union uh, to Brexit. 
I chose the phrase the Irish dimension because it seems less freighted with unhappy connotations than what was once the more familiar formulation, the Irish question. I'm sure I don't need to remind you that it was Benjamin Disraeli, speaking in the British Parliament, who first gave this phrase prominence when he spoke as follows. A dense population in extreme distress inhabit an island where there is an established church, which is not their church, and a territorial aristocracy, the richest of whom live in foreign capitals. Thus you have a starving population, an absentee aristocracy, and an alien church, and in addition, the weakest executive in the world. That, Disraeli concluded, is the Irish question. Well, Disraeli was not wholly wrong. And within a very short space of time, remember he spoke those words in 1844, and I hardly need to remind you of the cataclysmic catastrophe that was only a few years off. The starving population would be going more hungry even than ever. But there was also a strong element of ignorant condescension in this formulation, implying that the Irish were the problem and that it was up to the English or the British to sort it out if only the Irish would let them do it. However, so this way of looking at things further suggests, the powers that be in London asked the right question, yet were persistently thwarted by the recalcitrant, uncooperative and ungrateful Irish in their, in their attempts to implement the right policies. This view of things reached its most famous and memorable formulation at the hands of Seller and Yatman in their hilarious comic history of England, entitled 1066 and all that, and first published in 1930. Every time they wrote there, the English thought they had found the answer, the Irish changed the question. <laughs> Note once again the underlying assumptions here. The English knew what they were doing and agreed what they should be doing, but it was the Irish themselves who prevented them from fixing the problem and thus answering the question because they kept changing it. Having recently completed a book on the whole of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, covering the years from 1800 to 1906, it seems to me that these formulations, harking back uh, to Disraeli, really don't get us very far. There may be some truth in them. On many occasions, the British did find the Irish difficult to deal with, but they are far from being the whole truth of things. On the contrary, it's possible to argue, on the one hand, that the English or British did not know what the Irish question was, or if they thought they did know, they lacked the political capacity to answer it. Whereas on the other hand, it was not that the Irish kept changing the question, but rather that the English or the British kept changing their minds as to how to solve it, which left the Irish increasingly baffled and confused and ultimately disaffected and disenchanted in their relations with London. Considering this regard, the Act of Union, passed at the very beginning of the 19th century, which incorporated this island of Ireland into what then became a much extended United Kingdom, and of course abolished the Irish Parliament, which had previously met here in Dublin. From the British perspective, this was in many ways, as they saw it, an essential defensive measure, partly in response to the Irish Rebellion of 1798, or, depending on your point of view, the Year of Liberty of 1798, 
and partly out of fear that the French, with whom the British were at war, might invade and use Ireland as a jumping-off point to attack and outflank Great Britain itself. The abolition of the Irish Parliament and the downgrading of Dublin from being a great national capital to a marginalised provincial city naturally caused considerable resentment and widespread offence. Resentment and offence which the British never really understood or made any effort to try to understand. Even more importantly, and here I engage with my theme more directly, the companion piece of legislation which the younger Pitt then Prime Minister had hoped to pass at the same time so as to sweeten the pill of a union was postponed for a generation because the political will or capacity was not there to deliver it in London. That piece of legislation was, of course, what would now what would become known as Catholic emancipation. Ireland might have lost its parliament and its autonomy and been incorporated into the United Kingdom in what some saw as a quasi-colonial way. But at least, so this plan went, many of its people would gain the right to vote at Westminster and play a broader part in the public life of the United Kingdom if their civil disabilities, essentially on the grounds of their Catholic religion, were removed. That at least was the original scheme, tying together as a package deal the Act of Union and Catholic Emancipation. But of course, and as is well known, George III, in almost the last decisive act of his reign before he collapsed into permanent madness, refused to countenance this companion measure, this essential companion measure, on the grounds that he had sworn an oath at his coronation, as every monarch since King William III had done, and indeed as every monarch since George III himself has done since, to uphold the Protestant religion by law established, for, as it were, anti-Catholic purposes. And therefore, he was not prepared to support or tolerate this proposed concession, as he saw it, to the Catholic population of Ireland, because it was a violation of his coronation oath and would undermine the confessional supremacy of the Church of England or, of course, the Church of Ireland. Whereupon, having made his views on this subject plain, Pitt the Younger decided he could not go against his sovereign's wishes and the, manner, the matter was put on hold for the remainder of George III's reign and for the regency that followed. Although they disagreed on many things, George III and his son, George IV, did see eye to eye about the significance and the sanctity of the coronation oath that they swore on the Bible in Westminster Abbey. And as regent from 1810 to 1820, and as monarch thereafter, George IV was no more enthused about Catholic emancipation than his father had been, and for the same reasons. Only when Ireland threatened to erupt in the late 1820s, and when pressurised by the Duke of Wellington and Robert Peel as leaders in the Lords and Commons of the Tory party, did the King grudgingly and reluctantly agree to the measure, even though many of Wellington and Peel's Tory followers continued to oppose it. But the problem, of course, was that it was more than an entire generation too late, and the ameliorative potential it might have had in 1800 had long since vanished by 1820.
1909. This was the first time in the 19th century, but by no means the last, when a British government simply could not deliver what was needed in terms of dealing with Ireland. Let me move to my second example, which concerns, of course, and unsurprisingly, the most tragic episode in Ireland's 19th century history, namely the Great Famine. The causes are well known, and the consequences were terrible, as millions starved because of the failure of the potato crop, and as millions more were compelled to emigrate, among them, of course, and as it happens, the forebears of President John F. Kennedy. What did the British government do here in terms of exercising political will, and could it or should it have done more? These remain very vexed and controversial questions. It's worth noting at the outset that the very same Robert Peel, now Sir Robert Peel, who was in charge of the Conservative government when faced with this crisis, had also been Wellington's foremost lieutenant in the Commons at the time of Catholic emancipation. The Tory rank and file back in the late 1820s had never forgiven Peel for, as they saw it, betraying the Church of England, which they believed the Tory party existed to safeguard, preserve uh, and uphold. And by the same token, they never forgave him for betraying agricultural protection in which they also firmly believed in 1846 by repealing the Corn Laws. Indeed, Peel only carried that measure with Whig support. The Tories were deeply split with the protectionists as the Brexiteers of their day. And as a result, the party was effectively out of power for a generation, though I don't, of course, presume to push that historical comparison uh, too far, uh, at least uh, yet. <laughs> Peel's motives for repealing the Corn Laws remain complex and perhaps ultimately inscrutable and unfathomable. But undoubtedly, they were partly because he was concerned about the growing trouble and distress in Ireland on the eve of the potato famine, which was already, as it were, foreseeable. And he hoped to ensure, by reducing the duties on imported grain, that there might be adequate supplies to make up for the dearth of potatoes, thereby, he hoped, offending off starvation. That measure didn't really work. The grain didn't arrive in sufficient quantities uh, in time. And nor did his government, nor that of Lord John Russell, which followed, spend much on public works or job creation, which might have provided employment and enabled people at least to have some money uh, with which to buy such food as there was available. This was partly because as the British economy itself moved downwards towards a very deep depression in the late 1840s, public revenues collapsed correspondingly and dramatically. There wasn't much money available. And it was also because in the prevailing climate of laissez-faire, the very idea that government should intervene and indeed borrow money to intervene to ameliorate even such a catastrophe as the Great Famine was anathema to many and entirely against the conventional wisdom of the time. Please be clear, I am not here in the business of either uh, defending or attacking the British governments of the time, and I'm even less here to minimize the dreadful Malthusian catastrophe of the famine. Rather, it is to point out, and this of course is very much grist to my mill and the argument I want to make this evening, it's to point out that British governments faced with this catastrophe 
lacked the fiscal resources for a large-scale public works programme. They lacked the ideological underpinnings for such a massive, what would have been a massive scale of intrusive interventionism. And they lacked the political will uh, to do any more than they did. But of course, and again I think to a degree that the British never imaginatively realised or understood, the consequences were terrible and lasting. Much more than in the case of Catholic emancipation, the English or the British were never forgiven for what the Irish saw as standing idly by while the country was convulsed with such a catastrophe. In 1897, at a counter-demonstration here in Dublin, protesting against the Diamond Jubilee, there was a procession carrying a coffin and the slogan bore the words, 60 glorious years, Ireland starved to death. And so to my third example, Irish Home Rule, the cause that Gladstone took up uh, in the mid-1880s, having already disestablished the Church of Ireland and having also attempted to solve the land question by passing measures to regulate relations between landlords and tenants, <clears throat> essentially to the disadvantage of the former and the intended benefit of the latter. But for Gladstone, there was more to the Irish question than the issues of religion, uh, an absentee aristocracy, land and poverty, those issues which Disraeli had in fact defined uh, a generation before. For Gladstone, by the mid-1880s, had come to believe that the whole issue of the Anglo-Irish Union itself was the greatest single impediment to the establishment of better relations between Great Britain and Ireland across the Irish Sea. Hence, of course, Gladstone's espousal of Irish home rule and his two abortive attempts in 1886 and 1893 to modify that relationship. Not, as his opponents insisted, as the first step towards the breakup of the United Kingdom and thus potentially the beginning of the end of the British Empire as a whole, but rather as Gladstone insisted, because the best way to reconcile Ireland to the Union and to its continued position as part of the United Kingdom was to give it a greater degree of autonomy and to restore its own legislature, although only for certain domestic issues, while at the same time keeping Irish MPs in the Westminster Parliament. The first bill was defeated in the Commons because many of Gladstone's erstwhile liberal supporters rebelled, just as the Tories, many of them, had rebelled against Peel over Catholic emancipation and the Corn Laws. The second passed through the Commons, but was thrown out in the Lords by the largest majority of modern times. Faced with a split in his own party, the intransigence of the Conservatives and the deep opposition of the House of Lords as well as of Queen Victoria herself, who was as opposed to Irish home rule as George III had been to Catholic emancipation, Gladstone could no more deliver on his scheme for Ireland than the younger Pitt had earlier been able to deliver on his scheme for Catholic emancipation. And it was not just that the measure could not be carried in Parliament, 
It was also that there was widespread opposition to it among the electorate of Great Britain, where residual anti-Catholicism remained a potent force throughout the 19th century, and where, as a result, the Liberals went down to heavy defeat at the general election of 1895, with the consequence that the whole issue of how to deal with Ireland in a kind of imaginatively Gladstonian way was postponed until the early 1910s, when, of course, it re-emerged in an even more virulent and violent form. So let me, in the light of those three examples, and I could, of course, give many more, but uh, time is pressing, return to those words of Seller and Yeatman, which I quoted earlier. Every time the English thought they had found the answer, the Irish changed the question. Well, it's incontrovertibly the case that Pitt the Younger, Sir Robert Peel, and Mr Gladstone all thought they had the answer to the Irish question, respectively Catholic emancipation, the repeal of the Corn Laws, and Home Rule. But Pitt could not proceed with his measure because the King vetoed it. Repealing the Corn Laws was insufficient to deal with the Malthusian calamity that was the Great Famine, and Gladstone could not carry Home Rule, initially in the Commons, then in the Lords, and it was very unpopular in Britain itself. The problems then, the problems, lay not with the Irish, but with the monarchy, the Parliament, and British public opinion. Notice also that part of the reason for these problems, or an additional reason for these problems, was that attitudes to these Irish issues did not map exactly onto British party loyalties. Many Tories and Conservatives were deeply hostile to Catholic emancipation and the repeal of the Corn Laws, even though they were Tory and Conservative measures. And Wellington and Peel needed support from the Whigs to get their measures through. While Gladstone effectively split the Liberal Party over Home Rule, and many of his erstwhile colleagues became Liberal Unionists, pledged to maintain the Union they feared Gladstone would destroy. Notice finally that the governments of the younger Pitt, of Peel and Gladstone, were all fatally damaged by their failure to deal successfully or their inability to solve these particular versions of the Irish question. Well, these are the three most famous examples which suggest that the attempts by Disraeli, no less than Seller and Yeatman, to define the Irish question in such a way as to put the blame foursquare on the Irish really don't carry conviction. And these are but the specific examples of a more general point. On the whole, across the 19th century, the British parties of the right, the Tories, then the Conservatives, favoured repressive measures in dealing with Ireland, passing coercion acts, increasing the numbers of troops and of the constabulary, arresting troublemakers and locking them up. Hence, for example, Arthur Balfour's nickname, Bloody Balfour, when he was Irish secretary uh, in the late 19th century. Whereas, by contrast, parties of the left, the Whigs and the Liberals, generally favoured a more emollient approach, letting offenders out of jail and trying to understand Irish grievances with which they attempted to deal. That's an oversimplification, but it's not, I think, 
fundamentally wrong. One of the difficulties of this, apart from the fact that many of these policies, as I've already argued, could not in fact be implemented, was that as the parliamentary pendulum at Westminster swung back and forth from left to right and back again, from conciliation to coercion and then back to conciliation, it became increasingly difficult for the Irish to believe that there was anything approaching a consistent British policy, because in fact there wasn't. Coercion led to resentment, which conciliation briefly mollified, but then it was back to coercion again, and so the cycle went on. Under these circumstances, it was scarcely surprising that the Irish found it very difficult to deal with the British, because the British kept changing their minds as to what to do. Accordingly, though I fear less pithily, it's possible to stand Seller and Yeatman on its head. Every time the Irish thought they understood what the British were doing, the London government changed and the new administration decided to do the very opposite of what its immediate predecessor had done. And that, for the Irish, was at best extremely difficult to live with. Thus regarded, Ireland was not so much Britain's problem, rather Britain was Ireland's problem. Most British policymakers knew very little firsthand of Ireland. Very few of them had actually even visited it. They tended to opt for short-term solutions to long-term problems, which were inadequate or contradictory. And when they tried larger and more imaginative schemes, they found themselves in serious difficulties in terms of parliamentary support. Public opinion was generally hostile to Irish Catholics. Party identities were fissured and sundered over the Irish issue again and again and again. And some of the greatest figures in public life were discredited or brought down over Irish matters. More than any other, Ireland was the subject that preoccupied and in some ways poisoned British politics in the 19th century, just as Britain was the subject that preoccupied and in some ways poisoned Irish politics too. Which brings me, as my title promised, uh, to Brexit. But how exactly does it do that? The answer seems to me to be very simple. Namely, that Europe has become, to British politics since 1979, what Ireland was to British politics for so much of the 19th century. Consider the parallels. Just as the younger Pitt, Peel and Gladstone, to name but three, were defeated by Ireland, so Thatcher, Major and Cameron were all brought down by Europe. And when it happens, the same will surely be said of Theresa May, though I very much doubt if it will be said uh, tonight. Just as the parties of the left and right were divided as to how to deal with Ireland, it didn't map simply onto party loyalties, so the parties of our own day have been and are divided over Europe, where on both the right and the left, among the Conservatives and Labour, there are those who are for the EU and there are those who are against the EU and those of indeterminate views in between. The parties are not the mediators of public opinion on this subject because they are themselves so riven and divided. Just as the younger Pitt and Gladstone were unable to pass the Irish measures they advocated, so it seems highly unlikely that Theresa May will get her Brexit deal through this evening. 
And just as anti-Catholicism was a powerful force in 19th century British politics, so hostility to Europe has become a powerful force in British politics in our own time, much fermented by UKIP and the tabloid press. Yet it's not just suggestive, though I think it is, that Europe has become as difficult and divisive an issue in the British politics of our own time as Ireland was during the politics of the 19th century. It has also, and here is the final extraordinary twist to the story, that the Irish issue itself has re-emerged as being a crucial element in the current Brexit imbroglio. Partly because Theresa May, having lost the general election, depends on the support of the Democratic Unionist Party in just the way that Gladstone needed the support of the Irish home rulers. Partly because the DUP itself is hostile to the EU, whereas Northern Ireland voted by a strong majority to remain. But also, of course, because the issue of the border between Ulster and the Republic of Ireland has assumed such central importance. A border, it's worth remembering, that came into being because by the early 1920s, the only solution to the Irish question appeared no longer to be home rule for a still unified Ireland, but partition of the Ireland instead. So where we seem to be now, and where I suspect the House of Commons will be tonight, is that for British policymakers, MPs, peers, politicians, Ireland and Europe have converged uh, in an especially intractable combination. And as a friend of mine said to me recently while we were discussing these extraordinary connections, parallels, precedents, coincidence and contingencies, you just could not have made this up. And indeed, the fact that I am delivering this discourse on these vexed and interlocking subjects of Ireland and Europe here in Dublin on the very evening that Theresa May's Brexit deal is being voted on and may be voted down by the British Parliament, just as Gladstone's home rule bills were in the 19th century, leaves me wondering who it was here at the Royal Irish Academy who had the prescience to arrange this meeting on this night of all nights. Or alternatively, I should thank Theresa May for having postponed the vote until it occurred this evening. Let me offer one final perspective on these matters before I draw this discourse to a close. Self-evidently, the relations between Great Britain and Ireland, and latterly between the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland, that have received the most attention have been those between governments, civil servants, diplomats and policymakers. No surprises there. Yet it's important constantly to remember that across the 19th and 20th centuries and on into our own time, relations between Britain and Ireland have occurred at many levels and they have sometimes taken many surprising forms. Another reason why the simple formulation of the Irish question addressed by a monolithic England or Britain in relation to a no less monolithic, no less monolithic Ireland is so wide of the mark. As Roy Foster has so brilliantly argued, there were and are varieties of Irishness, social, cultural, economic, geographical, uh, religious uh, and political, just as by the same token there are varieties of Britishness, 
Englishness, Scottishness and Welshness. Which means that the East-West interactions across the Irish Sea can, have and do take many myriad and multifarious forms which may be very different from the official interactions at a government level or the popular agitation associated with the late uh, 18th century rebellion, the achievement of Catholic emancipation, or the subsequent land war and plan of campaign. It is, after all, a well-known fact that many men, and they tended to be men, made careers by leaving Ireland for Britain. From Jonathan Swift, Richard Brinsley Sheridan and Edmund Burke, to Oscar Wilde, Edward Carson, Brendan Bracken and Brendan Behan. Only Roy Foster, an Irishman of course himself, could get away with calling these people mix on the make. Those are his words, not mine. <laughs> but there can be no doubt that great power Britain offered a bigger arena for their talents than post-Union Ireland did. And even as many ordinary people in, the ni in 19th century Ireland chafed under what they saw as the constraints and humiliations of imposed British imperial rule, there were others who saw the chance to be connected not just with the United Kingdom, but with the greater British Empire to which that union gave them access as a great opportunity. This was, of course, true of many of those impoverished Irish aristocrats who Disraeli mentioned, such as Lords Dufferin and Minto. But it was also, of course, true for many members of both the Catholic and the Protestant Irish working class for whom military service in the empire offered an escape from poverty and penury at home. Considering this regard, a man called Arthur Wellesley later became first Duke of Wellington. Born, of course, uh, here in Dublin, the son of an Irish peer, he saw military service in India and then in Europe. But it's often forgotten that between those military appointments and engagements, he was for a time Chief Secretary for Ireland. But having left for the Iberian Peninsula, he never returned to Ireland. And when he died in 1852, Tennyson eulogised him in his majestic funeral ode uh, in some very interesting and revealing words. I'll only quote one bit of it. Lead out the pageant, sad and slow, as befits an universal woe. Let the long procession go, and let the sorrowing crowd about it grow, and let the mournful martial music blow. Now the punchline. The last great Englishman is low. Well, what about that? Uh, it must be said that uh, Tennyson had clearly only got one entry in his rhyming dictionary when he composed that verse. Um, but the point, of course, that is of particular significance is the notion that Wellington was an Englishman. Wellington, of course, was not an Englishman at all. But in the later phases of his post-Waterloo career, he reinvented himself, he never came back to Ireland, as a kind of English uh, archetype. And that was, of course, how Tennyson celebrated him in his poem. And that, I think, tells you a great deal about British attitudes towards uh, Ireland. Finally, and here we eventually come much closer to home, I note with interest that although Irish nationalism in the 20th century has on the whole taken a republican and an anti-monarchical form, it has rightly been observed that the language of Irish separatism was often an oddly royalist one. Hence the Royal College of Surgeons, the Royal College of Physicians, the Royal Dublin Society, the Royal Institute of Architects of Ireland, uh, the Theatre Royal opened in 1935, and of course the Royal Irish Academy, all retained their regal titles. 
How interesting, as it seems to me, that in Republican Ireland there is a Royal Irish Academy, but in, monarchical, in the monarchical United Kingdom there is no Royal British Academy. <laughs> Such are some of the many contradictions and paradoxes of Anglo-Irish relations that have existed for a long time and which may even survive in the vexed world of Brexit in which we find ourselves today. Let me end then. Today has been for me, and has been most memorably for me, what I might want to describe as being, among many other things, a day of two presidents. Yourself, President Kennedy, uh, as president of this academy, and also the president of Ireland, Michael Higgins, whom I met earlier this morning, and with whom I discussed a variety of matters of what might be termed mutual interest. And while we did so, all the while I kept thinking of some words he had spoken when presiding some months ago at the launch of the new Cambridge History of Ireland here in Dublin, and which I quoted back to him this morning. A knowledge and understanding of history, your president observed, on that occasion, is intrinsic to our shared citizenship. To be without such knowledge, he went on, is to be permanently burdened with a lack of perspective empathy and wisdom. And he continued to be without historical training the careful and necessary capacity to filter and critically interpret a variety of, of sources is to leave citizens desperately ill-equipped to confront a world in which information is increasingly disseminated without historical perspective or even regard for truth. The provision of historical perspective and the regard for truth are among the essential foundations of any healthy democracy and mature society. They are also two of the many important and admirable activities of this Royal Irish Academy. And I am more delighted than I could ever say to have this opportunity to acclaim those efforts, to salute those aspirations, to pledge my support and that of the British Academy for all that you will be doing in the years ahead. And I hope that our academies will be doing together in the years ahead. Thank you.